Hey, Chris Garlock here. It's been a rough week here in the nation's capital, where the Supreme Court's historic rollback of women's rights and the promise, I should say the threat, of more attacks on worker rights to come. That's why I started this podcast three years ago. What happens today started a long time ago. And we can neither really understand the present nor forge a new future without understanding our past. Today's show about what worker history makes it into our monuments is a perfect example of this idea. But before we get to the show, I want to ask you to take a moment to share it as widely as possible. Post it to Facebook, tweet it out, email it to a friend, family member, or colleague. Because it is we the working people who have really shaped this nation. Not nine berobed justices, nor even 535 elected representatives. And if we do not tell our own story, who will? Thank you. Was it Cesar Chavez? Maybe it was Dorothy Day. Mother Jones Monument was controversial in in its time. So even at a site that you might think has one story to tell, there's a story of conflict there, even in our, you know, in our labor monuments. I am personally for uh, empowering the people whenever way is possible and creating ways to remember each other. And I think sometimes it doesn't have to be in a monument. Sometimes that's through our everyday actions or everyday thoughts. Solidarity with one another. This week on Labor History Today, Working People's Hidden Histories. Dr. Lane Windham moderates a discussion with Dr. Rosemary Foyer and Josephine Ahn, examining the ongoing struggle to create new memorials to labor organizer Mother Jones and the history of worker organizing that led to the construction of memorials to Filipino revolutionary leader Apolinario Mabini within the War in the Pacific National Historical Park. Today's show is excerpted from a longer program presented online back in December as part of the Monumental Labor Series, exploring the memory of work and working peoples in national parks and affiliated sites through their representation in monuments and memorials. The series was organized by NPS Mellon Humanities Fellows Dr. Eleanor Mahoney and Dr. Emma Silverman and was made possible by the National Park Foundation with funding from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. On Labor History in 2... The year was 1894. That was the day the American Railway Union, led by Eugene V. Debs, voted to support the boycott of Chicago's Pullman Palace cars. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. From your convictions, let them haul you off to jail. Have you been to jail, Justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down are ways to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail, Justice? Will you go to jail for justice? Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine. Here's Dr. Lane Windham with Working People's Hidden Histories. A lot of times we talk about how monuments and memorials unify 
a divided public through a shared history. Certainly, <laughs> we've got a lot of division right now in, in our nation, and so sometimes they can be unifying. But there are often political debates about monuments, and this is often seen as divisive. Josephine gave us an example of someone literally taking a sledgehammer <laughs> to a memorial. So to what extent does that uh, generative conflict, right? Is there generative conflict in these public debates over monuments? And can they actually produce new ideas and outcomes or possibilities? So I'd love to hear you all reflect on that. And you could talk about this in the monuments you're describing or in your own activism, because I know that both of you are scholar activists. I think that that in Civil War battlefields, right? For instance, they're supposed to be unifying, but we also know that the Confederate statues are there because of activism of people in the past, that they wanted to make sure that a, a version of history was dominant. And I think perhaps labor hasn't done. I know that Mother Jones' monument was controversial in, in its time. People were trying to guard the history themselves um, and try to make a somewhat unidimensional, but the time that it was actually erected in 1936, there was an attempt to take May Day away from her at the local monument because that was associated with communism now. And so we wanted to, they wanted to change it. They put up a flag later on. Mother Jones had talked about following the red flag of revolution. And she was also carrying a, an American flag, but in a, in a protest manner. And so even at a site that you might think has one story to tell, there's a story of conflict there, even in our, you know, in our labor monuments. And it's important to remember multiple stories can be told there, but we have to do that. That is, that is the heart of the activist project that historians need to assist with, I think, because you don't find that kind of material in a Wikipedia article or even sometimes a an academic article, the voices of people got obscured in our attempt to summarize and contextualize information. And I find the most exciting part of public history is being able to bring out those voices. It's what different voices. So I also did a, a project with the Verdon Monument, um, Verdon site in Illinois, which uh, was part of the mine wars. And I brought the vi voices of African-American miners of multiple numbers, including uh, strike breakers, but also unionists to that, and then the mine owners. And I think people really engaged with that. I'd love to see more of that at the national parks to bring that. And you don't have to have, you know, just include workers' voices, but including some of that conflict is, I think we know as labor historians, it makes it interesting. It makes it, makes it the stuff of fighting about. And that is a good thing for the parks to consider that, that, that we shouldn't avoid those kinds of controversies. And I think we recognize that with the, some racial issues, but I think it's time that we saw that too as an op opportunity in the labor monuments or labor sites. Yeah, you can't tell labor's history without talking about conflict. Right. So... Josephine, what, what about you? Any thoughts on the generative conflict and monuments? 
So when I was organizing with folks and talking about the connections between Chamor Filipino history, a couple of folks were asking me about Mabini, um, mainly Chamor elders. And I felt, uh, frankly, a little bit insulted that I was made to answer the Philippine Consul General's mistakes, even though I myself am a member of a relatively privileged part of the Filipino community. And it made me realize, like, why was I so uncomfortable? Like, I never knew about these histories, Chamorro histories of Asan, even though I lived like 10 minutes away. I grew up going to the Warren Pacific Park. It was a generative conflict in that it's a chance to open up conversations between two marginalized peoples, but it also means that it's holding the complexity of different marginalized peoples' histories in Guam while also prioritizing the often invisibilized histories of indigenous peoples. So the Ojibwe historian Gene O'Brien talks about like settler memories and commemorations as a form of erasure of indigenous peoples. So for me, the generative conflict is also showing how Chamorros and Filipinos can actually work with one another and think about how to address each other's inequities, each other's struggles, which I think is actually based on the more cultural praxis of enough of my look. It's not really fully about mutual relations, but about doing what's good for each other. And for me, for a lot of Filipinos, most of us only see Guam as an unincorporated territory or U.S. colony where you can get your citizenship, we you can get better jobs, which like for most Filipinos, it's a huge privilege. <laughs> so I, it's understandable, but I think that we could actually have these difficult conversations to work and be more in solidarity with one another because U.S. militarization does produce increasing rates of mental health um, uh, struggles, militarized poisoning, Guam has a history of Agent Orange poisoning, and people are suffering in Guam, like working class Filipino workers, especially during COVID and like tomorrow's. So I think there's more to be gained to be like through having these difficult conversations and ignoring them completely. Terrific. Thank you. So as we think about what's happening with monuments and memorials right now, there's a lot of discussion about having uh, a more diverse representation in our memorials. Why is it particularly important to have official government sites recognize the history of labor? and the working class. What do we what role do we think the National Park Service can play in lifting up those histories and are there any worries or problems even about with that kind of official sanction? We have a committee that's been working very hard. We were working on a specific site for Mother Jones um, representation and we were hoping to have more stories represented in that memorial than just her on a statue. It had to do with official space though, the official space of, of allowed by the city of Chicago. And I think we've ironed that out. We would like to tell multiple stories in that one sculpture, but it's always going to have a limit. It is going to be, it's a limited feature. And one of the things that Chicago uh, that happened after the Black Lives Matter uprisings of 2020 and the pandemic is their reconsideration of statues. They actually are mandating that any new statue that goes up has an active committee representing the history and allowing opportunities for discussion. And I think that's a nice model. And while we, were, we are very worried about what uh, the consequences might be for limiting a history that embodies the scope of her work and the, the history of her even in Chicago, we are growing more confident because as we were mandated to organize 
we've organized. It's how we're getting this statue. There's just no doubt about it. It's labor organizing. And we have a great team of people who are skilled labor organizers involved. So I think it's an ongoing battle to make sure the city in RA or the national parks doesn't limit the dialogue that is associated with these. If people complain, we have to have a standard that is the historian standard of is this legitimate history? So I think that so while I'm all for shared authority, which is one of the mantras of public history, you have to recognize that some of that more controversial history might, might be left out when you share authority with a public entity. Josephine, do you have any thoughts on uh, the importance of recognizing uh, the working class and monuments or any worries about that official mm -hmm. government sanction? Yeah, I think I am a little bit reluctant because federal recognition is such a controversial topic within for many indigenous communities. Currently, there's been some controversy around them our arms representative trying to um, advocate for recognition <laughs> of tomorrow's, which would categorize them as a tribe with similar to how uh, American Indian or Native American folks are in the U.S. context. So it is quite controversial. And I think some of it is that federal recognition for what purpose? And I think the purpose of the National Park Service initially was to document a certain narrative of um, history that was focused on militarization. But I think that current park officials, especially like Chris Johnson, who uh, introduced me to Emma and Eleanor, I think a couple of folks, especially Chamorro Rangers, like folks who go to the park every day can change this perspective. Federal recognition can be a, can be honestly a, a very, um, can lead to the shutting out of certain voices, but I believe it's in the power of the people. And I think labor movements teach us a lot about that too. And I think I also want to respond to Lotz's question because I think that the Mabini Memorial, it's interesting because some of it is like actually devoid of recognizing Mabini's incarceration. And he was very pro-independence at a time where, you know, like thousands of Filipinos died because they fought against U.S. militarization, colonization. And somehow it ends up being collaborating with the military. <laughs> and in that Wentz um, initial reveal ceremony, he says, we are now brothers. And now it's a little bit weird that colonial history resistance is suddenly being diluted at a time when Filipino labor is being so abused. So I think that it's important to open up conversations to the full complexity of that. And I'd also agree with Joni that like, um, there are a lot of traumatizing effects of causation. So I am personally for, um, empowering the people whenever way is possible and creating ways to remember each other. And I think sometimes it doesn't have to be in a monument. Sometimes that's through our everyday actions or everyday thoughts, solidarity with one another. My current work is actually moving from uh, physical monuments to the often forgotten um, memories and like oral histories and stories of Filipino women solidarities with Chamorros that span like 19, early 1900s to the present. So I am more going for the truly hidden moving forward. So sometimes I believe that federal recognition um, is a lot better than it sounds, but it does serve an important purpose and we can't discount it completely. So thank you for raising women. Excellent. This tonight's event is in part co-sponsored by a group called Will Empower Women Innovating Labor Leadership. And I co-direct that. And so I want to make sure we lift up women, which women's labor is often hidden. It is invisible, yet it is everywhere. And so I wonder if each of you could 
just take a moment to address women's labor or the invisibility of women's labor in relation to the monuments that you're describing. Yeah, I think that what intrigues me is that when I uh, first encountered Mother Jones, I learned, uh, at least from the books that were written then, that she was supposedly opposed to suffrage. I think that's uh, not exactly true. And I can go into that if anybody really wants to know, but it it is, and, and that she was organizing minors. So why is she an, an exemplar of the role of women? So that that's one thing that I, I thought about. But it is interesting to me that most of the, I would say the dominant group that wants Mother Jones to be lifted is our women labor activists, the women labor union activists. Some of the people who brought me that monument were Clue from the Coalition of Labor Union Women, which isn't as active as it was then. But I think uh, seeing that and seeing they could see themselves in this history. When I first started doing this project, I was very concerned that the most people who would be interested in it would be former minors. But it has her history has been embraced by teachers and nurses in, in the last year in a very robust way. Um, African-American active, uh, women activists uh, who are on our committee who see themselves and the loss, the critical thing of losing the fear. Mother Jones once said, you're never going to get anywhere if you worry about, to women, if you worry about what men think of you. And so they see those elements. But I think one of the things that she does that is often overlooked and that is part of these extractive communities is women's reproductive labor and really thinking about what that means. That is obviously uh, something that is underpaid and undervalued. And so when the city of Chicago asked us to make a relationship between her history and um, women's history or history of excluded groups, which is what we're obliged to do as part of the statue project. That's an exciting prospect to me. And we could tell a national story. We can tell a story that is really relevant to the present of what is valued in our society, what is devalued. And she saw very clearly that women's work was devalued, left aside. And so I think we can tell that story. I think the national parks could tell that story in any of these extractive communities. It was held up. It was, there was no way that those communities could exist to extract iron ore or anything else without unpaid women's labor. And so there's so many opportunities in those parks to bring that up. And it isn't the traditional, okay, women went into new fields of secretarial work, which also should be elevated, no doubt. But it is something that is, I think, the most invisible. And it is so critical to what we are enduring today as somebody who is the everyday sees the perils of, of reproductive labor and how much they impose on your workplace life. I think that's really been brought forth in the pandemic. And we need to do more to think of ways of thinking of the past and connecting it to the present, to the pandemic and who is suffering now. Josephine, did you want to say a word about the women, some of whom you say that you are interviewing or planning to interview? Yeah. So I think one thing that I think forgot to mention is that a lot of the Filipino workers organizations, which are mainly by province, which are the uh, specific regions like states in the U.S., are led by women. And I noticed this growing up in Guam and was a little bit alarmed by it. And then in my current research, I've been looking at Filipino women that were incarcerated alongside Mabini, but who are not really mentioned. And it's interesting that 
for me as an activist and a feminist activist that I had no clue about these people, about these women and how even like the folks who still maintain and clean up all the Mabini memorials are still women. It's important, I think, to um, also shift, I think, our understandings of who was memorialized and why. And I think um, it's also important to highlight that a lot of the Chamorro Filipino solidarities and like spaces are being created by Chamorro Filipino women, gender non-conforming folks, queer folks. And that it's really important to hard highlight the marginalized voices even within those who are already marginalized. Working People's Hidden Histories will return in just a moment. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1894. That was the day the American Railway Union, led by Eugene V. Debs, voted to support the boycott of Chicago's Pullman Palace cars. The nation was gripped by an economic depression. The Pullman workers were on strike because the company had severely slashed their wages. But Pullman had not reduced the workers' rent payments in his company town. When the American Railway Union held its convention in Chicago that June, the Pullman workers attended. They were determined to win the union's support. One of the Pullman workers who spoke during the union's convention was a young woman named Jenny Curtis. Jenny was a seamstress at Pullman. Her father had also worked for the company for 13 years. He had grown ill and could not work during the final months of his life. He died owing $60 in back rent to the company. Jenny had to pay off his back rent along with her own board. Then, wages were slashed. Jenny became the leader of the ladies' union at Pullman Local 209. She addressed the railroad union meeting with passion and emotion, saying, We struck at Mr. Pullman because we were without hope. We joined the American Railway Union because it gave us a glimmer of hope. 20,000 souls, men, women, and little ones have their eyes turned toward this convention today. And thus, the merry war, the dance of skeletons bathed in human tears, goes on. And it will go on, brothers, forever, unless you, the American Railway Union, stop it, end it, crush it out. And so I say, come along with us for decent conditions everywhere. The American Railway Union voted to support the boycott, but the effort was brutally crushed by federal troops, resulting in the deaths of two dozen workers. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Let's turn now to the questions from the group. We actually had one that was submitted uh, in advance, which is a question for Rosemary from Susan. And Susan does want a little more context on Mother Jones's opposition to women's suffrage. And so, Rosemary, you were indicating that story is a little more complicated than we might know. So tell us a little bit more about that. So one of the things that is... um is true is that you can read and see a lot of negative comments about women's suffrage. Mother Jones saying it was a distraction, but you could even hear her say that women should stay out of politics. And yet you can also see the exact opposite word. So most of these come from newspaper articles. And I would argue that some of it is trying to stir up and use her for an anti-suffrage agenda. And she's truth is she started as a suffragist. But she decided that that she did decide that was not something she was going to do. She has many statements where she says, I'm glad women got the vote. I hope that they do better with it than men did. 
And she's more of a syndicalist, somebody who thinks that workplace and industrial life was the heart of her project. One of the issues is also immigrants, right? She thought that middle-class and upper-class women would be more likely to be politically active and that immigrant women would not be. And she was working among mostly immigrant women. And so she thought that they would, she saw an exact example in Colorado where the head of the Democratic Party during the Ludlow events or the Colorado Coalfield War that led to Ludlow was the woman. People forget this, that she and the working class women appealed to this head of the Democratic Party, who it was a Democratic governor, and she just turned ear or she turned against these appeals to try to work to pressure that governor to help what she said was working class life. The other was prohibition. So it is quite complicated. She was convinced that that this was all an effort to bring about prohibition and limits on immigrant life. So there's multiple reasons where she had little snide comments. Frankly, I think she was wrong, first of all, that women, I, I think that in the early votes, we see that women didn't vote that differently than men, but they certainly do now. But she just didn't think that kind of, she was just much more focused in, on that. But I, there's just lots of comments of her saying she was fine with women voting. She just hoped they did a better job of it than men had. Okay. So we've had a number of comments in the chat about the Mabini Memorial. And I see Joni asked one about the traumatizing effects of colonialization and education maybe being part of what we need to do in, in the through the memorials. So I wonder, Josephine, if you could just reflect a little bit about the relationship of, of labor, working class people, and the colonialism in relationship to, to these memorials. Yeah, I think there's multiple parts to this question. First, the, the education system and the, the U.S. implemented both in Guam and the Philippines. I think it's important to contextualize that Guam is, was under martial law in the early 1900s, so that creates a different educational system where Chamorros were taught not to speak their language, were put in professional trade schools. And I think um, the Philippines the educational system, I think, it's kind of similar, but also I think if we read like Catherine Sinise, a choice work, for example, that explains like why there were so many, there are so many Filipino nurses because of the U.S. educational investment in Filipino nursing schools. And I think a part of that other educational system is the narrative that the U.S. is where it's at, where things will get better, which is why even after um, independence was declared in the Philippines, the Filipinos still decided to come to Guam support to think about like how World War II destroyed a lot of parts of Manila, other parts of the Philippines and Guam. Educational narratives after that also led to Filipino laborers come to, coming to Guam. And today, as Joni is pointing out, there's not a lot of history about Guam's own history in the in the island. I mean, growing up, I, we we never really talked about Guam's own like colonial history or even um, how the Philippines and like Japan and Korea, besides like the discussions of Japanese imperialism and the occupation of the island. I think a lot more to be said about how we can see the other parts of the Marianas, how we can see other parts of Asia, which is Guam is geographically closer to because of the educational system, we actually don't know much about those places. So I think um, part of the solidarities and why it's so difficult to form them is because of education's role 
and enforcing a certain narrative. So I think monuments also play a major role in education, but I think that the ways in which people interact with them can create different ways for us to learn other people's histories and also to learn more histories that are often invisibilized in the landscape. So Therese asks, is there an active committee exploring a monument in Chicago? And perhaps you could also touch on some of the obstacles you've found in Chicago. And then we also have Catherine asks, can Rosemary talk about her current book project on Mother Jones uh, and how this might differ from other biographies of Mother Jones? We have a terrific committee. We draw on a, a large base of support with the Chicago Federation of Labor. Chicago is a union town. We, we do have Haymarket and now we have the Pullman site, but there have been a number of organizations. We have a healthy Illinois Labor History Society organization that's that, as I said, has promoted labor history effectively. And that we are privileged because a lot of places don't have the, those existing, that existing base of support. But we started out to do this project and we got a stone cold uh, reception from Chicago when we first started. I will say it has been a major uphill battle. There was a, a women's group that lists 67 women that deserved to have some kind of, and it was a people, they wanted to have some kind of uh, representation of either through art. This was done in maybe 2009, 2010. Mother Jones wasn't on it. And there were very few work people who were selected as working class representations. It was always as an aspect of race, I think, or ethnicity that the working class aspects came in. So we had to start off with just helping them to see that Mother Jones was important and that she represented a larger history. And so we had historians and labor working together to, first of all, make that case. And it was in some ways pretty discouraging at first, but we had, I think it's, it's clear that there are very few women at all. And I think that's the major factor of the reason that we've got this going. We had it organized and they needed to clear up this problem that they had, which was, they think there's three, three women in statues in the whole of Chicago. And so that I think is, that gave us the leverage to um, make the case for Mother Jones. And then once the uprisings happened and they started tearing down statues, in it, it, they got a real basis. They clarified the basis through which you can't just come with a bunch of money or even a clear history. You really have to go through a process. And so that that helped. I, can, I could go on, but the committee, we had some very dramatic uh, events where trade union women activists came up and just were in the face of the art and the Chicago, the group that was organized or that was um, that we had to go through the process is called D case and, and basically said, we want this, we deserve this, we need this, we need to see our history represented and she will do that for us. So we're very grateful for that. The respect, I think the key difference between what I'm doing with Mother Jones biography is I see her connected to the unemployed movement and of the late 1890s in a similar way and her strategies connected to that unemployed movement. I think it had a much bigger impact than we come to recognize. So the making of Mother Jones was less a shtick. It's clear that she was, she was using her age and using her gender to take on the mind guards and so forth. There's no doubt about that. 
but she was an, a, clearly an organizer. And she, that, that does relate to women, that she saw the household as the basis for organizing and not the trade union. She wanted to, it to be inclusive and she wanted us to think about uh, the children. And many people have said that was just a family base and she's using women's domesticity. But I think that's actually pretty relevant. That the women, the fact that the relationship between the home and the workplace needs to be amplified. And I think it's still something that we have to um, make part of a labor agenda. It relates, of course, to issues of maternity leave and other aspects that we are still deprived of in this country. So, so Josephine, we have a question from Kristen in the chat for you. Do you think there should be a memorial to Filipino workers on Guam, one that acknowledges the imperial legacies of their of their migrations instead of Mabini? Or maybe um, both? I think it'd be interesting to, I think, memorialize Filipino workers also in a way that I think restored or rebuilt um, their connections with Chamorros. I think envisioning that kind of memorial would be really cool and something that could be done alongside community. But I think what's complicated is that a lot of the land in Guam is owned by the military or by elite more landowners or um, elite Asians. And I think it'd be difficult to even get the land. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I'm like, where would you put it? But I think to really have it be community-centered, there would have to be a large community um, outreach being done. And I think that would be best done through like organizational pathways, such as the Finogi Coalition, Filipinos for Guahan could work on something too. But I am worried about official recognition leading to um, the invisibilization of some histories. And I'm not sure that would actually lead to the preservation of the imperial legacies of their migration, because there is a lot of shame for being Filipino in Guam, being seen as like, cheap disposable labor because it's still happening in Guam. And so I think even just having a memorial, I'm like, wow, that'd be huge. But it could definitely, it would definitely have to be done very intentionally. And I think it would have to be done alongside Chamorros, but Chamorros thinking about, oh, where would we want this? How would we also build a memorial that actually recognizes Filipinos and Chamorros together? I think that would be an important question. I want to extend a really hearty thanks to Lane for moderating and to Rosemary and Josephine for sharing your expertise and your perspectives to Art and Kina in the chat and my co-organizer Eleanor for all your behind the scenes work as well. We're so grateful to the Kamanovitz Initiative and Will Empower for their co-sponsorship. This program was also made possible by the National Park Service in part by a grant through the National Park Foundation and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day 1,400 workers at the Milwaukee Electric Railway and Light Company launched a four-day strike. Three unions, representing about a third of the total employees, were fighting to break the hold of the company union. The Transit and Power Company had already fired 13 workers for union activity. IBEW, Operating Engineers, and the Amalgamated Association of Street and Electric Railway Employees Union led the walkout. 
They demanded reinstatement of their fired co-workers. They also wanted the right to pick their own bargaining representatives and insisted the company union rescind its policy of barring strikers from membership and further employment. The walkout began early in the morning as strikers surrounded car barns, garages, and power plants. Company agents barricaded facilities with barbed wire, supplied Pullman cars for strike breakers, and posted armed guards on streetcars. Almost immediately, striker Joseph Urbanski was mowed down and seriously injured as he tried to stop a scab streetcar. By nightfall, 5,000 strikers and their supporters had blocked five transit lines. They ripped protective screens from the streetcar windows and forced scab drivers to abandon their routes. As crowds swelled to 10,000 on the second day of the strike, a little more than half of all cars were in service. More than 100 streetcars had been damaged. Socialist Mayor Daniel Hohn placed the blame squarely on the utility company. Street battles with police and scabs continued into the third day of the strike. Milwaukee's Federated Trades and Building Trades Councils threatened a general strike in the city by July 2nd if the strike was not settled. By June 30th, workers celebrated total victory when the company conceded to all of their demands. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Was it Cesar Chavez? Maybe it was Dorothy Day. Some will say Dr. King or Gandhi set them on their way. No matter who your mentors are, it's pretty plain to see. If you've been to jail for justice, you're in good company. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Hope you enjoyed it, and if so, please take a moment to share it with someone you think will enjoy it. That's how we keep this history alive, how we build audience for the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, as always, to Labor History and Two, a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Labor History Today was produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Music Today, Have You Been to Jail for Justice? by the late Anne Feeney. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and I'll see you next time. Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine. Now the law's supposed to serve us, and so are the police. When that system fails, it's up to us to speak our peace. It takes eternal vigilance for justice to prevail. So get courage from your convictions. Let them haul you off to jail. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down are ways to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice? Will you go to jail for justice? Have you been to jail for justice?